Hi, this is Inside the Times. I'm Susan Lehman. Always looking for a little sexiness. Definitely not what you think of when you think the New York Times. But as Styles feature writer Jacob Bernstein explains on this podcast, this is one of the main things a Times style reporter keeps watch for. How do stories about Kim Kardashian, George Clooney, and Calvin Klein's $70 million home renovation fit within the territory that the Times covers? What constitutes a styles trend? Jacob is here to talk about styles, writing, and politics, and a bit about the recent HBO documentary that he directed, Everything is Copy, which is about his late mother, the writer, Nora Ephron. Hello, Jacob. Hello there, Susan. How are you? Good. So tell us, what are you looking for in a style piece? I think that the thing that we're always looking for is um, is a little sexiness. I think that we're looking for a cultural hook in some way that, that is also different than what you would see on the arts desk. Um, so a person that in some way intersects between the fashion business and culture, broadly speaking, uh, is, is always is always helpful. We like stories about sexuality. Uh, we like stories about gender. We like feuds. So are you sneaking gossip into the paper? Yes, I think that's often what we do. I mean, if you look at a piece like the one we did on Calvin Klein's house in the Hamptons, you know, which which cost tens of millions of dollars. I can't remember if it was 70 million or 90 million to do. 70 million dollars? What did he spend well, that on? Everything from really high-priced furniture to uh, the landscaping, which was insane. And in fact, part of why he had to put the landscaping up uh, and spend a huge amount of money on it was because it was a glass house and you could see everything inside when it was done. And so they had to sort of put up all these weeds so that, you know, so that when he was taking a shower, uh, people running by on the beach wouldn't be watching Calvin Klein naked. How does the style reporting that you describe fit within the context of the New York Times? Well, first, I think that it's a question of how you report it. And I think that it ties to, you know, how the 1% lives. And that's that's an important and interesting story for us at this historical moment. I, You know, Dean has said repeatedly that that the growing disparity between the 1% and everyone else is perhaps the fundamental story of our time. And when you have a reclusive fashion designer who... Uh, is spending $70 million on a house in the Hamptons, and it's right after the financial crisis, and it's, well, not right after, but, you know. Soon enough. Soon enough, yeah. So part of what we try to do is to do it in a way that's different than how the New York Post would do it, and that means that there won't be uh, a lot of anonymous quotes. Uh, There won't be ad hominem attacks on him. And and th- that's not to diss our friends at the New York Post who do many things very, very well, but we have to do them differently. So you wrote about Ricardo Tisci that he has slowly become the most socially connected fashion designer of his generation, a man whose tentacles extend from Oscar contenders to reality show participants, top drawer artists to gay nightlife promoters barely legal models to surgically altered socialites. How do you know stuff like that? What kind of research is involved in reporting pieces like this? Well, look, he has these parties in Paris during his shows, and, and many of them are there. So so some of that is, is right in front of you. But one of the things that we try to do is to spend as much time with the people that we're profiling as, as we can get them to agree to, because you really observe the best stuff, I think, not when you're interviewing somebody, but when you're 
watching them do things. So an obvious question. What's in it for a person to let Jacob Bernstein trail them unless they have a movie or a book that they're promoting? Well, sometimes nothing, and sometimes they don't want to do it. But with somebody like Ricardo Tisci, you know, I think that there's a legitimacy that that a piece in The New York Times bestows. You know, I think that it... I think it's a timestamp for for what he's done and what he's accomplished. And it's outside of the purview of Vogue. It's not something that's in a fashion magazine. Uh, It goes to a different sort of reader. You write a lot about figures who um, are transitioning or gay, and partly I assume that's because of the world that you're covering. But is there anything particular that's going on? Is there any agenda driving your reporting or special interests on your part? Well, look, I'm certainly a gay guy at The New York Times, right? And, and I think that who you are always informs what you do as a reporter. I think that gay politics and gay issues connected stories have gotten increasingly difficult to do in some way because it feels old hat a lot of the time. Trends are a big genre of story in the style mm-hmm. section. What constitutes a trend and how do you think about it when you have editorial meetings? Well, you know, multiple examples of it. I suppose that's the obvious answer, right? You know, that when something has happened three times rather than one or two, that makes things easier to write about. But if we're seeing things happen in the fashion world and they're happening, you know, in a variety of urban metropolises, I, I think that uh, makes it an obvious style story. You know, certainly we write about Brooklyn. And that's because a lot of the people on the desk live in Brooklyn, though not me. Um, let's talk for a second about the distinction between opinion and fact in styles reporting. You wrote in your most recent piece, which is about the actor Ray Fiennes, that he leaves his shirt open the better to show off his well-maintained 53-year-old torso and to convey a mischievous sexuality. Fact or opinion? What governs when you're writing things like this? Well, I think that is fact in that movie. I mean, you know, if you talk to the director of the film, he will certainly tell you that uh, that this is a character who who's a troublemaker. I, th- I think that's um, I think that's obvious to anybody who sees it. But a little bit of voice in the style section is is something that I think is welcome, so long as I, I think it's got to be well written, and I think it has to be I think it has to be supported by fact. You know, so we we just look for a little bit of of fun with it, and we like to have fun with things. And what about the subjects? Do they find it fun when you write things like Nicki Minaj was there, you're writing about the Met Gala, looking in her leopard print dress like the incarnation of Jessica Rabbit? I would suspect that Nicki Minaj has a pretty good idea of what she looks like at this point, although many people do not know what they themselves look like, right? So what's fun about this job and what isn't fun? Uh, certainly the, the ability to write about almost anything because the style desk crosses over between culture and politics and sexuality and rich people. And it's, you know, there's no topic that we can't address in one way or another. And, and, and that part makes it really gratifying. I think that as a writer, at least, being a generalist is always in some way more fun because, because you're not writing about the same thing all the time. The pitching, the celebrity wrangling that goes into it can actually be very difficult. And the velvet rope is a sort of perfect metaphor for our time in some way because, you know, it's the reporter on one side and the celebrity on the other. As that becomes a more and more pronounced thing, having the kinds of interchanges that reveal truth and detail and and, and all the important things gets much more difficult. And it doesn't feel nice, you know, on the occasion that, that you walk up to a celebrity to interview them and you're made to feel like an insect. And and that's not so uncommon, you know. I, What's the ratio, 
No, I wouldn't say that it's 50-50, but it's, it's more frequent than it should be. So what celebrities do you like to interview or what do you have the best kind of rapport with? Does it make any sense? You mean sense? which ones actually are the, are the easiest ones? I'm, I'm, I'm happy to answer Yeah, go them. right ahead. Sure. Um, Sarah Jessica Parker and George Clooney both really get this. And both of them are also real readers of journalism and, and regarded as a, you know, Sarah Jessica, you can actually see her on the subway reading either the New York Times or the New Yorker. Um, you run into to Clooney and and he's probably been to Darfur recently with with half a dozen reporters. You know, he very much believes in what the press can do. So they both get it and and they have fun with it and Madonna, you never quite have a personal interaction with her, but she always gives good quote. Do you ever develop relationships with the people you write about? A few. I've become friendly with a few and and occasionally have dinner with them. None of them are among my closest, closest friends. But, you know, I I text with a few of them. And part of how you operate as a reporter and and do it successfully is is to have tentacles of your own that are that stretch as widely as they can and, and to make people feel as comfortable as they possibly can about telling you things. And and part of how you one of the good things about my job is that I don't tend to write about people on an ongoing basis. I tend to write about people once or twice and then I've sort of moved on. So, you know, I wrote about Whitney Cummings and every now and then we wind up at a show at the cellar together. And and I don't know, that seems like good research to me. Talk for one moment about the difference between the way the New York Times covers style and the way, say, W or Vogue or the Daily Beast and other venues where you have written before. We appeal partly to fashion insiders and a certain kind of one percenter in New York, but we also appeal to all sorts of other people. And and so our stories have to make sense to them and they have to be explainable to the larger culture, I would say. Is there anyone you'd like to interview who you haven't interviewed? I very much wanted to interview Rebecca Miller. Is this in terms of her, the movie she's just directed? Both the movie that she's just directed and, and what it's like to be running that foundation of her father's at this particular moment. And uh, she had a kind of fascinating benefit for it where all these actors did scenes from the different um, Arthur Miller plays. And it was very interesting to think about them in the context of, you know, what happened with the child who Miller didn't acknowledge. I, I think that perhaps Rebecca Miller's people sort of knew that that might have been a thing that I was interested in, and that was why it didn't, why that assignment didn't go to me. But how she's negotiated having a real career of her own, um, she's not as famous as her father, obviously, and she probably won't be, but she's she's done very good, interesting work. And and so to be at this moment in her life kind of dealing with his legacy, I, well, I, I suppose there was some, some personal stuff in that too, right? Speaking of personal stuff, yeah. you made a movie it's a, about it's your It's not mom. a terrible segue. You made a movie about your mother, and you have parents who are both celebrated writers. Mm-hmm. Does it bug you when people ask you about that? Sometimes. It also goes with the territory, and, and I, I decided to make a movie about my mother. So... So I sort of have to remember that the person asking me about it is not an insect. You know, that there are reasons and that there are things that people want to know. And, and, and there were things that I wanted to know, which was, I guess, why I made it. So you said in an interview about the movie that you made, Everything is Copy, about your mother, Nora Ephron, that some very good advice you got at the beginning was to know what the movie is about. Mm-hmm. It's about your mom, obviously. But what was it about for you in a larger, broader way? I think in a broader way, it was about how a writer negotiates the line between private and public and what it means when you are 
doing a certain kind of comedy because comedy, I think, exists in this thin sliver between bravery and ruthlessness. And I was very lucky to have parents that were interesting people. I mean, I, I could have had parents who wanted me to be a stockbroker or something, and, and then I would have been in real trouble. There's been a lot said about your dad, Carl Bernstein, and his agreement to um, participate in the movie. Mm-hmm. And you had said at some point that you asked him why he'd had the affair, and there was a disagreement about whether or not that should go into the movie. Mm-hmm. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, it certainly seemed like an obvious question to ask, I guess. But I also think it's sort of a stupid question when you think about it, because why did he do it? Well, because he did it. The question with him had less to do with his own motivation than with how she reacted to all of this, you know, and and the kind of certainty with which she left the marriage and decided to write about this, that that's the story here. Was your father happy with the movie? Yeah, he was, actually. And and that worried me a little bit in a certain way, because I always think if they're happy <laughs> with it, does it mean you've done something wrong, right? But the impulse to speak one's truth, to tell one's story, I think that that is, I think it's a totally basic need. And um, I think it's how we process our lives. And so if F. Scott Fitzgerald had not done Tender as the Night because he was worried about Zelda and the the loony bin, you know, would be sort of sad. You know, it's a really great novel. We'd and less. Yeah, we'd, we'd have less. And, and I, I think, I, I suppose I, I believe that in some awful way that the audience is more important than the, than the people. Publicists beware. You know, you'd said that one of the things that you found out about your mom that surprised you was that she had um, whacked so many people in her writing and gotten away with it. What would you say? Is there a lot of whacking going on in your writing? Are you getting away with it? No, I wouldn't say that I whack a lot of people. I would say that we are actually pretty cautious, particularly at the New York Times. I, I think that I, I don't think my mom did a lot of hatchet jobs, but but we really can't do them here. I think that I think sometimes the reporting backs up that somebody has really made mistakes and 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 done things poorly, and and then it's my job or anybody's job here to to report them as fully as they as we can. But there's an extra level of voice that existed in the late 60s, early 70s that you can't really get away with anymore because the lines are just are drawn very clearly. There are velvet ropes. Um, Did I read the reviews? Every single one of them. And I think you learn stuff from them. And in, in fact, there were a couple of reviews that, that I read after the New York Film Festival in September that there was something about how there were these sort of cheesy shots of me on a laptop sort of writing on screen. And, and, and they weren't wrong about them. We kind of needed the narrative device there, but, but we, we did actually go in and take a few of them out uh, in between there and the premiere. And, and I think Wait, it you was, took out scenes after the reviews we came took, out? We, took out, we didn't take out whole scenes, but we took out a couple of shots, yeah. I, I didn't have any problem doing that. I, I think that artists and the press should be in a dialogue with one another. I think that maybe that's because I, I've now done a little bit of both. I don't know. But, you know, the, the people who are critiquing your movie have, have a wealth of experience and knowledge having watched movies. And, and if... If one of them says that something is a little cheesy, maybe that's because it is. They literally see things differently. Which is more fun, directing movies or telling stories for the newspaper? And do you have more movies up your sleeve? I do have more movies up my sleeve, and I I think that both are a lot of fun. I think documentary filmmaking in particular, in a certain way, goes goes quite well with with doing journalism because both of them are are forms of narrative nonfiction. You know, I, I think that... 
it's just a different medium. Certainly, I'm excited by it right now, and, and, and I want to do more of it. But I want to do more journalism, too. Thank you, Times Style reporter Jacob Bernstein. It's been fun chatting with you. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Inside the Times. You can subscribe to our podcast at iTunes, and you can find out more about the inner workings of the paper at nytimes.com slash insider. I'm Susan Lehman. <laughs>